from an industry perspective, the best thing that we can do is build the highest quality content we possibly can in terms of refresh rate and color and field of view. Yeah, those assholes at the mall, like pushing people off the side of a roller coaster. <laughs> so from my perspective, it's like, okay, so when? When did you try VR last? What was the experience that you tried? Low quality content can create that particular opinion of the entire platform for five years <laughs> you know, or something like that. So the best thing we can do is build really great content, right? And give folks the best opportunities to retry and see what high quality viewer is all about. Today's guest is Tony Bevilacqua, and he is the CEO of Cognitive 3D. Their business is a cutting edge 3D analytics platform. What they do is truly fascinating and maybe even a little scary. In VR, they collect spatial data, tracking how individuals navigate within a 3D space. They monitor what people focus on, what captures and retains people's attentions through seeing what they're looking at, and even how they interact with various elements, whether it's with their hands, eyes, controllers, you name it, it's pretty wild. So how this works is that anybody can take their SDK and import it into their app through either Unity or Unreal. Once the data is then collected, Cognitive 3D can take it and use it to transform it into insightful visualizations, providing developers with a clear understanding on how users are interacting with their 3D experiences. This is such a crazy episode. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. What was some of maybe the kind of maybe bumps in the road that you had during those beginning stages and maybe some of the successes and things that helped you stay motivated to keep going? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest piece was, you know, we wanted to build uh, a product that followed, you know, kind of the the flurry and, and mixed panel playbook, right? And, and the, really the idea here is be generous, give things away for free you know, capture the market, you know, help people understand and, you know, uh, ultimately monetize folks that, you know, need advanced needs or, you know, have achieved some sort of success, you know, in the market. And we realized that like, we weren't going to be able to build that company back in 2016. Like it's just the funding had dried up at that point. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of venture capitalists. They'd all been burned because they wrote a bunch of checks at 14 and 15. Right. And so we're coming on slightly late, you know, after that run. And I'm glad we didn't take money back then, because if we did, we probably would have burned out really quick. Yeah. Um, you know, there's plenty of companies that are around today. And I remember all of their counterparts back in that era, you know, of of uh, of creation. They they raised a bunch of money and they burned out. And now there's a new company and it's absolutely brilliant, but good timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, we kind of forced ourselves to stay alive by finding these enterprise opportunities. Um, you know, we... we in terms of like, you know, bumps in the road and stuff like that, you know, uh, COVID was a bit of a, a blessing in disguise as well. I think that that really forced a lot of folks to rethink work and think about, you know, how uh, training needs to be delivered, how learning can be delivered as well. And I think that the early motions of that were already in progress uh, in the market. Like we already saw that, you know, people were finding good adoption, in, but it wasn't until COVID that really things really started to kind of push forward in a major way. Um, because folks needed to find a solution to a problem. And so we obviously got tailwinds from that, um, kind of on a trailing basis through 2021. 
um, as people start trying to measure it and extract value from those and, and connect those with learning management systems. These are all things that we do really well. Um, you know, and then we started to get to a critical mass around the end of uh, 2021, started building up our client base. And then we ended up doing a financing round last year uh, with Convoy. We raised two and a half million dollars. It was Convoy, Space Capital and, and Boost VC. And uh, after that, we've, we've grown the team from, from five to 15 and we've been really just all in us. That is amazing. That is amazing. And I can't even imagine how exciting that is and the energy in the office. That's got to be such a good feeling. Are you guys in office or are you guys doing remote? We're remote. But once a week, we all, you know, put the headset on and, um, you know, we, you know, we do stand up in VR. Um, we do uh, social time once a week as well in um, in VR as well on Fridays. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of weird. You know, dog food and VR ourselves just to kind of like make sure everybody's using their headsets. Uh, we give a free VR headset to every one of our employees that joins the company. So we've been using that as kind of a vehicle for staying connected to each other as well. And then once or twice a year, we do an onsite. So we just did an onsite uh, the, just before summer. Oh, I love that. I love that. I, I have to ask because, you know, there was kind of this, I don't know if it was a time, but like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, a lot of people here like, oh, yeah, we'll just like go to the office in VR. And we're like, what? Um <laughs> But honestly, VR, I feel like it, it does feel like you're with the people that you're with. Like it, you almost forget that they're not there. And, yeah. you know, um, so with, with I'm interested, though, because I'm usually just in it with friends when it comes to, you know, business and having employees or colleagues. Uh, how is it being in VR with all of them? Is it like is it kind of something where you? you're at the head of a table or on a stage, or is it kind of like an open platform where people can walk around and talk? Like, how, how does that work? It could be any of the above, you know? So we're using um, Verizon Workrooms is what we're using today. Um, this is a, the meta product, obviously. And so on Workrooms, you can choose like what type of room you want, what type of view. Um, you can kind of customize and style it. Um, folks can dial in. So I still have folks that'll be on the road or whatever. They can just come in with a webcam and you can see them you know, kind of on the wall. Um, but it is really cool to kind of see everybody together. You know, you can kind of actually, once you meet folks in person, you can kind of sense like what's going on. And you'll see somebody with their virtual hand going like this, and you're like, okay, they're <laughs> holding a cat there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of, a lot of cat folks. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, it's really great. It's, the spatial audio is really cool. Um, being able to see the visual cues with, you know, the head tracking. Uh, I've got a number of people with as well so you get the eye tracking as well so you can kind of like yeah get the eye contact elements as well yeah it really is funny i i have a friend he's in california um, when i got married i there was a lot of friends from north carolina who i just hadn't seen in years and then there were some that i've been seeing like all the time and but i had one friend in california who i really hadn't seen in like four years but we were always on vr together and what was weird is when we all came back, uh, you know, and everyone flew up to New York, I felt like my friend Spencer, who I'm always in VR with, we had like, it almost felt like we weren't apart for four years, you know, just because we were in VR so much together that, I don't know, it was very interesting. We were even talking about it. I was like, it doesn't feel like we haven't seen each other in four years. I was like, I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Talk, talk, talking to someone on the phone is, you know, there, there's something to say about that social presence that VR brings to the equation. And I think that, you know, if you do want to do work on a distributed basis, and that's kind of a whole other discussion. I mean, it works for our company. 
Um, but you know, if you want to do that, I think VR is a good way to make those connections. I can't do an onsite with the whole team, you know, right. every month, you know, or something like that. But you know, we could all jump in VR once a week and get to know each other a little bit better. So I think that that's you know, everybody's been doing webcams and Zoom for the entire time uh, for you know the you know that plus the meetings. Um, but VR kind of brings a little, something a little bit extra special. So I want to dive in a little bit to the company and kind of what you guys are doing. So from it being the most helpful tool to it maybe even being the most scary tool ever. So what are some of maybe the first projects that you guys were really working on or implementing this project into? Yeah, it was definitely probably, if we go all the way back, probably consumer research was number one. So this is leveraging VR as kind of a vehicle for data collection on a digital twin is mm -hmm. the best way to describe it, right? So you create a virtual world, you know, maybe you want to collect some insights from what's going on in that virtual world. And so a good example might be for us, consumer research encompasses a few key categories. The first one is in architecture, engineering, construction. So building a digital twin of an unbuilt space or a prototype of a space or something like that. In a use case like that, we can give you really good insights into wayfinding, like how people move through environments. We can give mm. you insights into signage or you know key points of interest, things that like draw people's attention, things that they're interested in when they're in those types of environments. Another example would be in uh, product design, right? So product design for me, I would think uh, automotive, right? So yeah. you know maybe I'm Ford or General Motors or something like that. I'm pre-visualizing a vehicle. Uh, in VR. So I'm trying to iterate on a really traditional kind of almost archaic process where we're kind of building out physical prototypes, clay models, those types of things. Now I'm taking 3D assets off of my asset pipeline, getting them into visualization and doing car clinics virtually as opposed to physically. I think that's another good example in that case, Cognitive 3D can give you really good insights into what, you know, keeps draws people's attention. Um, also wayfinding inside of a vehicle as well. So if you task someone with something important, like find the hazards button, you know, or find the volume controls, you know, or something like that. Um, these things could be things that these are insights that the, the manufacturers are really interested in. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that, you know, that's where you can get really good value on leveraging VR as a, as a data collector. Um, and, and collecting those insights. Third category for us is uh, retail CPG. So retail CPG, thick store design. Uh, everything, every time you walk into a Walmart or a Target, regardless if you realize it or not, every single one of those shelves is strategically placed. I know. Those have been uh, negotiated. The register aisle? Ooh, that, those, those are high marketed items. People don't even those know. Those are activation. Those yeah. are, you know... Uh, <laughs> They have a good idea of what uh, what people are going to be interested in. Um, but, you know, VR in this case also provides good insight in those types of things. So we've done some work with Kellogg's, for example, where we help them introduce a new product into the poster pastries aisle. Um, and uh, in the use case like that, they wanted to understand, like, if we introduce this new product, is it going to cannibalize behavior from our, our high grossing products and like that sort of thing? So, yeah, so they use VR to kind of test those behaviors with their target demographic and customers, right? And so in that case, again, we're collecting behavioral data. Like, what did people grab with their hand? What did they pick up when they rotated the product around? What were they paying attention to? Um, so, you know, those are the types of insights that you can garner there. Um, so consumer research is kind of like the first obvious place where folks understood the data collection profile. And then we kind of moved into the training and simulation category. And this is another place where we found pain. And there's two different types of pain inside of training and simulation. The first one is that content needs to be high quality. 
And for this applies to all VR, like all VR content needs to be high quality or you're going to drive like just terrible retention. You're going to like drive down your session times. You could get attrition, not just from your title, but also from the entire platform. We'll talk more about quality later, Um, but, you know, helping them understand, like, is this a high quality application? And then the second question is really around understanding and comprehending human performance, right? So like, did the user understand the tasks at hand? Um, Did they demonstrate, you know, good knowledge retention of skills? Uh, Did they execute the, you know, the, uh, were they complying with the, the, the tasks at hand? And so we have really great tools for measuring those behaviors and helping understand, like, did people do the training correctly? And we connect that data so we can connect it to other systems. So if you're a big company delivering training at scale, uh, we can tie it to your existing learning management system, whatever you're doing to deliver knowledge. Oh, that is so much amazing information. I've got a million questions. I mean, almost wish I was writing all my questions down because I, I so many so i man because there's everything from just i think education is one of the biggest things in the field the amount of information you get is massive um but there's companies you can work with i mean just so many vast use cases you can go through that i would love to hear about let's i want to actually start on how has your product uh, affected education have you done any a and b testing with that and what were maybe some of the results if so yeah, I mean, learning by doing is is obviously a better mechanism delivery. Obviously, we don't build content to cognitive 3D, we measure it. So sure. the value proposition of delivering learning in immersive technology is something that's proven out by all the folks that are building fantastic applications and helping their customers uh, and ultimately the end learners be able to learn within this new medium. Where we focus is obviously the measurement side of it. And so we've done quite a bit, you know, vocational training has been a, a big a key element to what we've done and, you know, helping people learn like complicated processes where, you know, you could put the, uh, the learner at risk, you could put equipment at risk, you could consume resources, you know, all these things that are a little bit difficult, create a little bit of friction places where you want to get reps, but reps are expensive, you know, that's a good, good spots, you know, where you can use VR and, and, and get gain a strategic advantage over traditional methodologies. Right. And so on the cognitive 3D side, we're, we're collecting behavioral data on, you know, were they meeting the specific criteria and criteria can mean a lot of different things. Did they pick up the right tool? Did they use the right tool? Did they, um, demonstrate situational? There's lots of different ways that you can use data, um, to be able to do a more a uh, comprehensive evaluation of, of human performance beyond pass fail, right? So mm. this is like, you right. know, going beyond like, did they complete the module? Did they watch the video? Like this is, you know, how some traditional learning gets done in an LMS system. You go on there, you hit play, watch the video, you know, maybe fall asleep. Um, you know, we're measuring engagement, like was work completed yeah. proof of work, right? Right, yeah. right, yeah. That is so cool. I, I mean, it's just so powerful because, you know, I've even seen that education is one of the top things that VR has just been helping in, in the fields overall. Like I know that, you know, you have the military using it. You're seeing that some surgeons are starting to use this. I've said this before on the podcast, but there's a really cool, uh, they did an AB test where kids were able to learn about the Wright brothers and how far an airplane flew and what it looked like. And awesome. one, they just read a book and then another one, they all got to be in VR and yeah. the scores were just astronomical and they were only in the VR experience for like three minutes. Whereas the kids were reading for almost 30 minutes and 
is there's so many positive good use cases it's very exciting yeah we did very stat similar studies with Accenture and found very similar um types of outcomes like one of the studies that we did uh, studied a, uh, a user's ability to repeat steps in plumbing, as an example, right? So replacing a toilet. And so we wow. had one, one cohort of users watch the training uh, using a YouTube video. Then we constructed the actual app, which was to install the toilet. And then we had another group that learned in VR. And uh, yeah, we found much higher uh, ability to complete the task uh, by the folks that uh, that did it in VR as opposed to watching the video. Most of the folks in the video missed steps, um, picked up the wrong tools, engaged with the the uh, the, the world incorrectly. So, um, you know, I think there's a there's there's definitely proof proof around this idea that um, learning by doing is more effective. So I want to ask too. Now I know that. So you guys essentially have the data processing um, in the visual space. Now, is that something where your clients will get the data and then they do their own analyzation? Or is it something where you guys kind of, you're like, no, we'll do the analyzation for you. And we very much specialize in that. Yeah, um, depends on the customer. Um, you know, we offer an SDK for Unity and Unreal. Um, typically, our customer will install that into their application, and that is a prerequisite. We can't just measure anything. Um, you know, you have to produce the app, put the SDK in very intentionally, and then that acts as a conduit of data into the platform. Um, the platform offers a few different things. It has the dashboards, which are all kind of like prefabricated, ready to go. So you can log in, you'll see some insights right away. And so, you know, one KPI that we kind of, uh, you know, look at at Condo 3D is from integration type to insight. Like, how long is it going to take for you as a developer to see value from this thing? And so dashboards that are turnkey is, is step one. Um, the platform is also very configurable. And again, we don't want to do professional services and get into a situation where we're building things constantly for each individual customer. So we gave the customers the ability to create their own valuations, right? If we have the, the shape of an immersive experience, they're, they're all different, right? They can all have different outcomes, different inputs, um, different value propositions. And so we ended up creating a tool called the objective system. And this allows you to set up sequential or non-sequential criteria that reflects success completion or compliance uh, with the scenario. And then we'll measure like how long, how many, how many users met each step, how long the step usually took to get completed. You can see a burn down of like where users got stuck. And that could be wow. indicative of just like a poorly performing audience, but it could also be indicative of like UX and UI problems and things like that too. And now how is this data all measured exactly? Is it through like, you know, through movements? Is it all of it? Or do you have to like pick a thing to analyze one thing at a time? Or do you just get all of the data at once? Um, what, what's that kind of process like? Yeah, for sure. I think in the earliest stages, you start off with a tool like Scenic Explorer, which is that after action review. That acts as your proof of work. It's also the most raw data stream that we have, right? So this is a literal one-to-one -one replay of exactly what the user did. Great in the UX and UI and the early QA, you know, kind of area of development. Uh, horrible at scale, like you know, not not even remotely uh, uh, repeatable. Uh, but it is a great uh, ability to kind of dig in, right? Especially if something goes wrong, right? If something goes wrong, then you could open a tool like Cynics Bar and you're like, what happened here? What did they do wrong? Um, Axe sure. is a good tool for like a trainer to be able to kind of go and observe uh, what happened. Um, then it comes down to our dashboards. And our dashboards are kind of prefabricated around a number of different insights. Um, and then it goes into uh, our objective system. Our objective system can assess a few different types of data. 
So it can assess gaze, it can assess uh, fixations, it can assess positional data, so how people navigate through space. It can um, assess events. We collect a whole bunch of default events automatically, like button presses, people picking things up, doing things with controllers, all that stuff's automatic. Um, but you could add stuff that's more specific to your content. Uh, and then we also have a tool called Exit Pool. And so Exit Pool is all about qualitative answers. Um, so, you know, you might want to ask, you know, uh, your audience at the end of the simulation, you know, like, did you find that VR was restricting your ability to perform? You know, did you find VR to be comfortable to you? You know, like the different types of things that you might want to record as somebody running a program. Um, so we have the ability to collect that data, associate it with what actually happened inside the headset and give you kind of a holistic picture on what happened. Say, for instance, you had somebody and you wanted to test out just a feature or to see how well a program run or how much people liked a certain application. I'm guessing as I'm thinking that this would be very completely based on experience, but in order to get a conclusive result, how many tests do you maybe suggest somebody do using your application? Yeah, I think that a conclusive result, especially if it's a very kind of uh, quantitative process, like sequential in nature, you know, like did they follow the sequence properly? You're going to get a very exact score. You know, we don't provide like this idea of pass fail, right? You can build something as simple as pass fail. Um, but within our tool set, we're going to show you like where they stop, where they got stuck, like where they have performance problems within the application. And the idea here is, is that more reps through experience is going to make you better over time. So one of the things our customers can do log into the dashboard, they can pull up a specific user participant and then be able to see like, okay, how many times have they run the application? Are they getting better over time? Oh, interesting. I like yeah. the getting better over time. That, yeah. That's fascinating. Um, and I also like, so you have Unity and Unreal, very exciting. Uh, is this something where just kind of a day-to-day -day user um, could go on? I know you said you're primarily focused on enterprise. So is this something where you probably only are working with companies right now, correct? Not necessarily. Um, so in 2022, after the, the funding round, we opened the platform up to everybody. So, you know, we talked about like that goal that I had around, you know, wanting to make this as available as possible for the community of developers at large. And we we're financially constricted from being able to do so in the early days of the company. Now we're at a point where it's like we're doing it. So, you know, we do offer a freemium product. Most developers that don't have super advanced requirements or huge audiences won't pay us a dime for years. Um, you know, and then we're looking to obviously, you know, create some monetization around developers that are doing absolutely fantastic. Um, hopefully using our tools to help them get there. But uh, we do have a full freemium product. Um, we're Unity VSP as well, which means we're a verified solutions provider. It means that we've been quality assurance tested by Unity. Um, it's a oh, very it's, cool. Yeah, it's been a very battle tested SDK at this point. Um, literally, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of developers are using it. Um, we're closing in on a thousand. We'll get there at some point. Um, anyway, so we've got all these different developers using the, uh, the SDK. Really easy to to get started and to install. It's just a plugin, so you just kind of bring it in. Um, you'll see if as a Unity developer, it'll pop up with like a wizard, and then you just kind of follow the steps and you're off to the races. Oh, interesting. So it's a pretty easy SDK install, bring in, apply kind of process. Yeah. Remember when I talked about like all the learnings over time? Yeah, that that was one of them, right? Is <laughs> like, how do we make it as easy as possible? 
Um, you know, and then the other thing is just experience, right? Like there's like seven years of edge cases built into that Unity SDK, you know, like all the different iteration we've done over the years. We've seen mm. a lot of stuff in this industry. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love it. So being in your shoes and um, being in this field as long as you have, have you seen anything that was surprising where you're like, I can't believe this is kind of like a human behavior. I maybe didn't expect that I keep recognizing happens over and over. But yeah, I mean, we're learning stuff every day. I think that, you know, like just from a features perspective, uh, you know, the, the first several years of the company were really building the foundation. So like, how do we collect the data? How do we visualize it? And then later on, it became more about like, how do we make sense of it? And then it became a little bit more about like, how do we surface insights to developers? And so I think we're in that phase right now of how do we take all of this great data that we have and actually boil it into something that's that's really actionable. Um, not mm. just as like a, a really granular insight, but high level insights that you can take away as a developer and, and go make some, some changes to your application. And so we've been spending a lot of time around this concept of quality. And so quality for us is made up of kind of three key areas. The first one is really in comfort. So understanding how comfortable a user is inside of the headset. And we use it to a few different inputs for that. We look at like overall FPS performance of the, um, of the application. Um, we also look at uh, ergonomics and posture. So like what, what kind of input profiles are we expecting? The, the head angle orientation, hand controllers, are we asking them to do things that are like really uncomfortable over time? Um, and we boil that into a score, right? And so that score can then be filtered by different aspects of your application. So like scene A versus scene B or this audience versus that. Um, and then you can go deeper into the dashboards and actually be able to see like, what were the things that we used to calculate that score and what could I potentially make better in my application? Um, the second one is presence. So, you know, understanding like what creates good immersion within a particular application. And we use a variety of inputs for that as well. And then the third one is really around just raw application performance. We meeting like meeting minimum 60, ideally 72, you know, what's our battery dispersion? Are we aggressive at distributing heat? Um, those types of elements. And so all of those different things form into a zero to 100 score. And this acts as a barometer for you as a developer, like where do I stand, you know, among apps and my peers within the industry, what's my score, you know, and like, how can I make that score better? What companies, I don't know how, what, how much you can talk about this. I know you mentioned Kellogg's. Is there any other companies that you've had reach out to you? And what was that kind of exact experience like, whether it was helping them solve a problem or fix an issue? What was kind of, how's that been? Yeah, I mean, you know, Cognitive 3 d is fully commercial and being production for years. So we've got literally hundreds of apps reporting data into the platform. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint a use case. And I, I also don't talk too much about uh, clients unless we have kind of permission up front. But, sure. you know, I, I think from a high level perspective, it's really around the use cases, right? So you got the training, uh, consumer research, and I didn't really talk about it too much, but academic research. We power over 35 academic institutions. Wow. To eye tracking and other types of research data to help them build better stuff. Um, on the gaming and entertainment side, you know, we're really trying to help them optimize their applications and providing spatial insights, right? So we provide a lot of really good spatial visualizations on where different types of behavior is happening within the scene. And then we give the metrics to kind of give an idea of how to make those things better. So 
I'm going to ask uh, an interesting question here. Now, one thing, I always try and get people into VR, and half the people I get, nah, man, I get, I get, I get motion sickness, right? Have you used your platform to kind of figure out maybe why some people get motion sickness and maybe why some people don't? Has that ever come up in any of your search results? Yeah, I think that some humans are predisposed to this regardless. So I think that there's mm -hmm. going to be an, a, a high level of sensitivity regardless of what we do from an industry perspective. I think that the best thing that we can do is, as, as an industry group is build the highest quality content we possibly can and run it with as best human parity as we can uh, in terms of refresh rate and color and field of view and other things that can make users uncomfortable uh, within these experiences. I think that, you know, we talked about in the early stages of the company, you know, cardboard came out, um, we had Gear VR, you had those assholes at the mall, like pushing people off the side of a roller coaster, you know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> so, you know, oh, yeah. for, you know, from my perspective, it's like, okay, so when, like, when did you try VR last, you know, right. and what was the experience that you tried? And, you know, this is really, you know, kind of leads back to this, like people, a lot of folks have a real tough time on trying to understand App Lab, right? And the reality with App Lab is that, like low quality content can create platform attrition. Like people could just put the headset back in the box and take it back to the store, right? If they have a poor experience, right? They pick something that they think is gonna be interesting to them and maybe hasn't been tested by a lot of users and that not so good application, right? I'm using less colorful words here. That not so good application could potentially create that uh, insight or that particular opinion of the entire platform for five years <laughs> you know, or something like that. So that's, that's my, my, you know, kind of my read on it is that, is that, you know, there's going to be people that are predisposed to this sort of thing. There's going to be, um, the best thing we can do is build really great content. Right. Yeah. And, and then also give folks the best opportunities to retry and see what high quality viewer is all about. I love it. I love it. Yeah, because there's such a difference. You know, it's almost like needs a different name, the high quality versus the low quality VR. It's just a night and day experience. So with your platform, I, you know, we've been saying VR a lot. Have you guys gone into kind of the MR, mixed reality space or AR space? Um, have you guys dove into that yet or planning to? Anything driven by Unity and Unreal is measurable by Cognitive 3D, especially with OpenXR. Like it really kind of opened everything up. It's, you know, we used to have to support every single headset one by one, you know, and yeah, everybody oh had God. their own SDK and stuff like that. And so, you know, OpenXR kind of opened things up a bit. Um, you know, we do support those. There is some privacy implications for what we can do in augmented and mixed reality. And so from my perspective, um, like we don't capture the real world, for example. So mm. I can get I can give you the relative position of a user to a dynamic object. And if I look at that object, that's fine. But everything around me that is part of my real world is not gonna be something that's visible on the cognitive 3D platform. Oh so, gotcha. You know, yeah. So I think it creates, you know, the ability to collect insight about things that we're rendering for the user and how they might have engaged with those things that we're adding uh to the seat. Um 
but it's not to say that we won't be like that forever. And I think that one area that we can provide additional value is just helping developers understand the scene structure. And when I see screen structure, I mean the the environment we're in. So I've got a desk here, this chair over here, um, the walls are over here. And being able to understand the confinements of my space could actually be really helpful to potentially optimize these experiences and make them better. So I think that there's an opportunity for us to take it further. But so far, we've really just been focused on on the on the VR space, and that's where, where we're able to create the most value. I think you'll see us do a little bit more in the augmented mixed reality uh, space next year. I love it. I love it. Cause yeah, it's, it's going to be massive, you know, and there's, I just say we're just in an interesting time where we don't know what users want yet, where, you know, you could do something as silly as, you know, I always think the Ken Burns, you know, effect, it's like the longest name for just saying pan in. It's like all you do is pan in and that's known as Ken Burns effect. Right. And, yeah. um, but I think that we're in this weird time in virtual reality and AR where somebody could invent something that's very simple or something, a gesture even, that everybody just relates to and it helps the entire industry drastically and you get a named after yourself and voila you know. is it gonna be is it gonna be the bloom <laughs> yeah exactly Maybe the bloom <laughs> the tony bloom you know the microsoft bloom <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so we're entering you know it's a fun time to be around and i love that you're kind of like seeing you know helping companies and people make these products and learn about what people are doing um, and kind of speeding that up for a lot of industry people in the industry, which is awesome. It's awesome. Um, so I guess going into maybe this will be maybe I had one kind of dark question to ask, but, you know, collecting data, that's something that a lot of people are always scared about. It's the new thing, you know, obviously in one sense, it's like we all want to hate it, but at another sense, it makes our experience so much better. Um, what are kind of maybe some negative views, if you have any, about what you guys are doing? Like, do you find that maybe like our product could be used in a negative sense where it could be oversaturating or maybe even manipulating a customer to certain extents? Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you have any preventative measures that are um, or actions that you guys try and take to prevent any of that ever happening? Yeah, I mean, we think about this in every day in what we're building. We uh, try to collect data in the most responsible way possible. Um, we uh, process that data for customers that are interested in demonstrating insights from their users and building better content. And so we don't play this game of like, let's give it away for free and anonymize a whole bunch of data and target people with that. It's like, we, we just don't do that. We're here to sell a commercial product that makes lives easier for people that are trying to build things. So I think that just having that position as kind of the, the first posture, um, obviously there is potential, you know, kind of evil, um, you know, possibilities here with companies that are maybe not following our model, but, um, you know, from our perspective, we can only do, you know, we only have the, the ability to impact our own space. I think that one of the things that we recognized early on is, you know, in the mobile space, and I, again, I have a little bit of experience in mobile, there's this concept of do not track. I've talked about this before, um, you know, with a few folks and, you know, do not track was basically this concept that, you know, if you set a signal that says, you know, I don't want to be tracked or something along those lines that these analytic products 
ad networks, other things should respect that and, and turn off analytical tracking. And, you know, all of the analytics companies in the mobile space went down this path of like, well, you know, there's no standard. We have no incentive to create a standard. So you know, we're just not going to respect it at all. So you go read a modern, you know, uh, privacy policy, of any of these huge companies, including the huge public companies, it'll mm. sit right in there. Do not track. Oh, yeah, there's no standard. So we don't do it. You know, wow. and so from, right. from, our, from our perspective, we were kind of like, let's go. Um, so uh, we ended up creating a uh, we created a, a, a basically a consent framework called mm. the XRPF XR Privacy Framework and I gotta plug it real quick so it's XR oh I love it over plug it I mean let the yeah. world know about this honestly I, I'm XR, so happy to hear it. Um, and so with that SDK you could pop up a consent window that describes the different types of data inputs that the developer is interested in collecting for what reason, and then provide consent or not provide consent. The second side of the solution is that we built into our SDK and our SDK is on a source available basis. So if you wanna go and see what the Cognitive 3D Analytics SDK is actually doing, you'll see it littered with XRPF references because we actually turn off all of the independent data streams based off of what the customer asked for. And so you can give us basic information. You could say, you know what, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with eye tracking or, or something like that. You just click that one off and we'll turn off just the one signal. Um, so you have the ability to kind of define that. We respect it. We don't store the data. It doesn't even leave the SDK in that case. It gets thrown out, thrown out or not even collected. Um, so yeah, that, that's the path that we, we went down. Um, haven't seen a ton of use on the XRPF yet. I'm hoping that developers will adopt it over time. Love um, it. We'll give yeah. it another, we'll keep giving it a shout out, you know, that, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's lots of other folks that are doing really good work in privacy too, like the XRSI and um, other groups that are really kind of advocating for, you know, kind of safety in XR, child safety in XR. Um, those types of categories as well. I think the best thing that we can do is try to just be good stewards for the data, um, yeah. fire customers that maybe, you know, don't comply with our, you know, privacy policy or terms of service um, and uh, continue building good tools. Uh, man, I'm, I love hearing just that you're putting a good foot forward in all of this because, I mean, Lord knows it's so easy just to be like, you know what, uh, we don't have to do that. And it uh, looks like a little bit of money and a little bit of fun stuff's coming this way. So um, the fact that you're putting all of these implementations forward and, and trying to do the best that you can. Uh, is it's great to hear it really is yeah. and it's it's a open source mit framework so anybody can contribute to it um there's documentation available on the website um and then there's a unity and an unreal sample and anybody can contribute to those so with cognitive 3d i mean again there's just so many use cases that you can use it for i think it's probably one of the coolest Awesome. I mean, I, even I've been just like looking into it and I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I would use it for, but I just want to try it out. Um, it's very cool. Uh, do you think that there's, you know, and again, I'm just so for education. I just view this as like one of the most powerful things that you could do to help people learn faster, more efficiently. Um, I could ran, ramble on and on about this, but um do you think that maybe cognitive 3d do you think that there's maybe a field or a space yet that you think could actually very much benefit with working with you guys that maybe you guys haven't gotten into yet hmm. that's a good question we don't do a ton of soft skills right now i think that that would be interesting on the training simulation side um 
we're trying to get into more um yeah this will probably be kind of more of a next year thing but creator platforms right like we want to be everywhere that people are building content and so you know unity and real are great and they've created they're great stewards for creating content and you know they've been fantastic for the a good majority of developers but it's not the only places creation is happening right and you know you're talking about education earlier you know kid at 12 is a problem you know like it's not a solved problem either right like content creation has to be as easy as one, two, three, point and click, you know, deploy. And it needs to be a really simple process that any educator with limited or no budget, you know, is able to kind of jump into and, and create create content. In. And so I think that that's still, you know, kind of an unsolved problem. And so, you know, I want to be close with places that that creation occurs and help measure those types of environments as well. Mm, I love it. All right. I, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm hoping that... Uh pans out because yeah that definitely seems like a great use case so with ai are you guys planning on implementing that on maybe figuring out new methods to analyze data with your company or is that something that maybe you're straying away from um what's your thoughts on that yeah i think we need to be careful about what ai actually is and the and the level of effort it takes to actually achieve a high quality model that can demonstrate value. I think that what I've been seeing recently is that huge analytics companies, including companies like Amplitude, you know, this is a public company with a lot of employees, right. um, is just releasing a new SKU that gives you AI capabilities on your own data. And the idea being there is, is that you can surface insights, right? You can find the needle in the haystack and surface the things that, you know, the end user might be looking for within their data. I think that in Cognitive 3D's current journey right now, um, we've started trying to make sense of things. And so for us, like we could call it AI, but it, I think it's a lie. Um, you know, we're doing machine learning, right? So we yeah. created a machine so, learning model just in the last month or so. Oh, that, fascinating. Uh, yeah, we actually built one that, um, so like the meta platform doesn't give you sit stand information. So I'm standing right now. But like in the headset, we don't really know. Like you know how you know how high the headset's off the ground and like how it relates to maybe your hands and like the input. So you get you know, you don't get like a ton uh, of contextual information, but the developers want it. They actually want to know like what the input profiles are of like their users, not just at the beginning of the application, but through the entire app. And so we don't get like a good, like solid signal from anyone, you know, like that, you know, sitter standing. So we built a machine learning model. We got something like 85, 87% compare uh, parity with like what um, self-reported stand uh, profiles wow. were. And so we're shipping that now. And we're just making that available to our developers to be able to demonstrate. It's like, okay, let's see. Uh, retention and session time by our sitters, sitters or sorry, our standards. People that exited prematurely, were they sitting in their standing? Just, you know, you start adding some of this contextual information, you can suddenly empower the developer with insight, right? So it's like, you know, if you get really terrible performance from people that are sitting all the time, you might need to encourage them not to, you know? Wow. <laughs> right. I mean, it, that is so true. You know, you don't know. And that like that one little data set can give you so much information. Yeah. Oh, man. That is very cool. Now, so to learn that data, is that something where 
you have to do cross reference training with the data you have versus other data to yeah. kind of figure that out with the machine yeah, learning? Yeah, so that's how we did it. So we have a QA team that works outside of our company that runs our sample apps every single day. So we have all these different sample apps for different purposes. And so these sample apps have uh, all of our traditional signals in it, our experimental signals, and then it also has our baseline of data. So we'll collect demographic information from the testers. We'll collect information about specific questions we have, like, are you currently standing? Are you currently sitting? We can prompt questions throughout the applications. And we'll use that as kind of like a, a source of truth to compare against our collected signals. So we're not going to be able to ask everyone inside of a headset, like, hey, are you sitting or are you standing? But what I can do is create a baseline and then use that to, to train a machine learning model. So that's, that's kind of what we've been doing. Um, we do that for a lot of different types of modalities as well, trying to figure out different types of, uh, you know, solutions to problems. I don't think this is our first machine learning algorithm. We're going to be doing quite a few. Absolutely. I think that's where the real heavy lifting comes in and some real cool applications coming in. I mean, just that, knowing if you're standing or sitting, I, as somebody that's just in VR, you get the funniest, hilarious, like floppy body sims that come out with uh, that information. But yeah, that that's very cool. Where do you see maybe like VR or AR being in five to 10 years? That's hard to say. Um, I know. Five years, five, five, no five wrong years. answers. Five years, uh, you know, I think that we could see much smaller form factor, continued acceleration of uh, reduced hardware size, maybe network-based compute. Um, you know, some of the prerequisites that we need to get to glasses 10 years down the line, I think that this is just going to be a standard input profile. You know, you got a couple options to kind of raise the, uh, human capability. You know, one way is to let Elon Musk drill into your brain, um, and put an implant in there. The other option <laughs> is to make people really smart and, uh, give them superpowers via, via glasses and actual information. And so I think that the real opportunity in the XR space is to give humans a, a higher level of knowledge, understanding, and context in their everyday life. It's going to take a lot to make it useful. Like, you know, I'm not going to open my United app in my glasses to be able to understand, <laughs> you know, how, how to navigate the airport. But right. if they, you know, at some point they're going to figure out such such a way that, you know, you show up at the airport, it really has a good contextual understanding of what you want at that particular moment. So I think that that's the next apps, app store is really going to be about contextual discovery on your glass. Mm, I agree. I mean, it is funny. I, I wear glasses now a little bit. Uh, my eyes are starting to dwindle, but that's okay. But yeah, it's so funny that I think it's like 100% of people ask if they would want AR in their glasses, uh, if they would want that or not. Like everyone said yes, you know, but what, but what was interesting is that when they asked people whether they would wear glasses with AR capabilities, a lot of people kind of said no. So it's an interesting space, but I think everybody that wears glasses in the future will definitely have some amazing tools and if you demonstrate value proposition you know to you know consumers at large on how this is going to make your life better make your life easier make your life more accessible i think that that's a really easy way to win the hearts and minds of folks that are not necessarily bought in you know, it's not going to work if the people think of this as kind of an AR hellscape where 
you know, you're trying to consume the user's field of view until they have seizures, you know, or something along those lines, right? So I think that, um, you know, if we can create, make really valuable things, you know, uh, AR glasses that you know, you're walking down the street on your way to a meeting or something like that, it, in a very subtle way, there's a path on the ground to, that you're following and, you know, or, or, you know, something along those lines, or you're walking up to somebody speaking in a completely different language with you and suddenly there's a universal translator in your ear. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting superpowers, right? I mean, yeah. I would never say no to that. You know, yeah. I, I find it very hard to say no to that. What do you think at this current stage, maybe in the next three years, is kind of the biggest hurdle that is facing the industry right now from kind of hitting a, I mean, it, it, it's pretty mainstream right now, but I guess in even broader mainstream of users in the VR, AR, and XR space. Yeah, I think each of those categories deserves kind of a different answer, but I, I think that sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that on the on the like MR and AR side, I think that they have a real battle against technology ahead of them still, and I think that you know there's a lot of like uh, you know negative attention going towards Meta on the amount of money that they're spending with uh, the Facebook Reality Lab, and the reality with that lab is that they're working on next generation compute. And they're working on difficult problems. They're working on how to create things that are impossible right now. You know, super thin glass optics that are invisible, you know, like uh, low low or no battery dispersion, you know, reducing heat, you know, get, running all this stuff in the cloud. Like there's just so many things that need to be kind of solved. And so, you know, I think that those are all really core fundamentals. I think that VR is kind of interesting in that it provides a testing ground for a lot of this stuff as well. And so you're starting to see mixed reality, like really high quality mixed reality starting to make its way into Quest, uh, Quest 2, Quest 3, uh, Meta, Meta Quest Pro over here as well. And so I think that, that that offers a testing ground as well. Even with the um, the Apple Vision Pro, if you think about kind of how, how that went about, they'd be working on this stuff for years front-facing cameras, eye-tracking, avatars. They trained all their users to be excited about 3D things, right? And now they're introducing a headset that leverages all of those toolkits, capabilities, SDKs, right? Like, it's brilliant. Like, they've been seeing it for years, right? And I think that the Vision Pro itself is really, you know, going to be a, a dev kit in the playground for what is the art of the possible in this particular category. Um, but from there, you know, then it moves on to how do we get this cheap? How do we get in everybody's hands? Mm. Yeah. So how do you how do you think that this Apple Vision Pro plays out? How do you think the news and the consumers are going to play on this new device in the next three years? Yeah. So I think like the you know the initial release is going to be developers, uh, enterprises, prosumers. You know that are really interested in in you know checking out the platform, what it's all about, what its capabilities are. I think we'll see a lot of really cool demos, use cases, capabilities. In the meantime, I think that there's a reason they call it the Apple Vision Pro as opposed to just the Apple Vision. So you know I, the question then is like, okay, well, what is the lighter weight version of this is going to be? I think that my opinion on the release, and obviously I was really excited by this, it's something I've been waiting for for seven years or. Um, you know, is that they didn't do a race to the bottom. You know, there was a real opportunity for them to release a slice of what they should have or, you know, like a basic capability. But I think that they decided to release something really expensive because mm. they think that that level of capability is baseline to make this space work. 
Mm. And I think that that's a good way to look at it. Now they're forcing everybody else in the industry, including all the other HMDs, OEMs, uh, folks that want to play in this space to race for quality and high quality uh, uh, headsets as well. So I think uh, overall, really happy with the release, excited that they did not release garbage um, and uh, excited to kind of see like, you know, where that goes and what it forces other people to do as well. Well, I want to go no. into speaking of just me being in VR chat and just your experience. I know maybe you guys are involved a little bit or maybe you guys do have plans, but um, the metaverse, what is kind of your thoughts? I know that's such a uh, cliche word that got thrown around for so long, but what is your thought on the metaverse? What does that mean to you? And, and do you guys have any involvement or plans in that? Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it's a funny word, you know. It I, is. I, I think that I think that folks have been building in three D forever. You know, I think that there's been a huge motion from when I started this company, you know, and kind of before that, all the way through to now, uh, and building immersive technology around that. I think that metaverse is kind of a marketing term that got you know kind of ahead of itself. Um, you know, if I think about how I would relate to the metaverse, I think that it's more in line with how we use the word internet. Right. And, you know, kind of comparing it to that type of use, right. I'm going to go on the metaverse. I don't think that early consumers of the internet referred to it as the internet. I think they referred to it as like you know, AOL or, you know, I'm going to go check my, my, you know, AOL email or, you know, something like that. I'm going to go browse the web. Um, you know, I think that those are the ways that folks refer to these types of solutions as the value proposition. Like, what am I actually getting out of it? And then later on, you know, you kind of got a little bit more mechanical on what this actually is, right? So you go from AOL into many different internet providers. And then it was like, okay, now we need to educate the audience that AOL is just one of many uh, internet providers that can deliver experience. So I think that um, reality is, is that there's lots of mini metaverses right now. Metaverse to me means interconnection, uh, interportability of avatar. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, participant state, the ability to move between applications without downloading a ton of shit, like that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. like that would be, that would be my, yeah, that, that, that's how I, I kind of look at like the mechanical pieces of have we achieved the metaverse yet? It would be that interop that I can follow my friends around a, a wide variety of different experiences. And it's very seamless. That's we meet, we've reached peak metaverse once we get to that point. A lot of work to be done before we get to that. <laughs> yeah, I cannot agree more. I find yeah. that to be a few years away, a few years away. Um, yeah. And then I guess this will be, I'm sorry, the very last thing. But Oh, good. Keep going. Okay. Yes. Well, um, yep. uh, just with NFTs and blockchain technology, do you guys have, a, maybe not NFTs in your case, or maybe so, I don't know. But with blockchain technology, are you guys implementing that in any way? Yeah, we talked a little bit about data use and maybe having consent on chain or something like that. If you have like a del delegated authority of data or something like that, that's revocable. You know, like we had those types of thoughts. And the problem is, is that like the the our, our customers not necessarily sophisticated and asking for this sort of thing, right? Like they're not yeah. you know, actually demanding, right? It's like, oh yeah, that's a cool idea. It's like, let's go spend a couple of years. That's not necessarily just any licenses, right? Um, right, right. Yeah, it's like, okay, cool, we're bankrupt, but we got this here uh, blockchain thing. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool idea. I like this idea of putting control back in the hands of users and stuff like that. I don't know what the path to get there looks like. Um, obviously, still pretty early, but I do yeah. think that there's a, a play around, you know, data consent delegation that could potentially be explored and um you know i think that there'll be a demand from audiences the problem is, is that the audience that are demanding it are very sophisticated right now and and few as opposed to many mm, um, so i think that uh you know that'll that'll evolve over time interesting interesting yeah i love that idea of having like a blockchain of consent like maybe when you go yeah. into different areas that consent form that you have on you is could be verified through different platforms yeah. and different spaces. We talked about it with XRPF. We just couldn't invest at that level, um, you know, to kind of look at something like that, you know, but um, yeah, I think that there's something there, you know, that, that could be developed over time. I yeah. love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, do you have any other things that you'd like to say or maybe some questions or any information you think we might've skipped on that you wanted to share? No, that's it. I, I think that, um, you know, if you're interested in consent, privacy, that sort of thing, um, check out xrprivacyframework.org. Um, that's the website that kind of describes the program, what the capabilities of the SDKs are. You can download the SDK from there as well. Uh, if you're interested in cognitive free, like what we do, collecting data, um, it is a freemium product. You can get started for free. Cognitive3.com, you can just log in with your, your you know, um, Gmail or whatever, and uh, you'll be off to the races. Um yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks. Tony, thank you so much for this amazing episode. It was a lot of fun hearing about your company, what you do, and then speaking a little about where we think the future's going. It was very exciting. Yeah, thanks for having me.